The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. And welcome, everyone, to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest, a returning guest. We are honored to have Genpo Roshi with us. And Genpo is an author of several books, a spiritual teacher, a former Buddhist priest, and he has a whole lot going on. We had the pleasure of having Genpo as a guest in the last year and had quite a wonderful response to his show and Gimpo, welcome to Leading Conversations this morning. Well, thank you, Cheryl. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Yes. Thank you. Great to have you. So where are you today? Okay, I'm sitting here in Maui, which is my home, and which is also the home of uh, Big Mind, uh, which is one of my two nonprofits. Uh, and it's a gorgeous day. It's uh, just a little after eight. How can it? How can it not be gorgeous in paradise? <laughs> well, you know, I do live in a part of Maui where we get a lot of weather, um, and we've had storms, a lot of storms, uh, this season, and it's still absolutely gorgeous and it's still paradise. But this is one of those blue sky days that uh, we've only had a few uh, recently. Uh, so it's just gorgeous on top of gorgeous. Gorgeous on top of gorgeous, absolutely. Well, and what a beautiful place to be able to connect with nature, connect with the spiritual elements of the earth, and um, to really be able to go inward and and do some self-reflection. It must be quite, um, I don't know if relaxing is the right word, but but certainly deeply spiritual. Both both are correct. Um, It's been... Um, a year and a half that I've lived here uh, primarily. I have a cabin up 8,000 feet near Salt Lake City at a place called Mount Solitude where I spend a good part of my year, too, in solitude. But uh, it's been a year and a half that i lived here, and it's both relaxing and uh, a good place to be, like you said, reflective. I want to add my... Probably one of my oldest and best friends, uh, he's also a Roshi as a master, Bernie Glassman, is just, I can see him sitting outside right now as I sit inside. He's here for two weeks. His wife joins us tonight. We've been writing a book for the last four days. This is our fourth day. And oh. I've taken a little, break, a little break from the book to uh, have this interview. But yeah, he's here. Well, we're honored that you're taking time away from that. I know that writing is um, something you do very well, and it, it's tough, you know, to when you're getting immersed into it to to 
take a break and step out. So we're honored that you're doing that with us this morning. So, Gimbal, let's talk a bit about um, what's been going on with you for the last year or so. Uh, you have had, um, shall we say, quite quite a visible transition. Um, people have um, been aware of what's been going on in your life. Um, many people have. Um, and, you know, as I described you as a former Buddhist priest, um, you know, it's... it's can, I, can I correct that? Yes. I, I, I did try to disrobe as a priest. Uh, it was not accepted by the headquarters uh, in Japan. So it's not quite true. I'm not a former Buddhist priest. I still am a Buddhist priest. Oh. Um, yes. I, um, the same thing happened with my, my brother, Bernie, uh, uh, Roshi Gossman. Uh, he also tried to step down as a Buddhist priest. Uh, and since the both of us are very key figures in the Zen Buddhist world, it refused both of us. He still considers himself having disrobed. I don't at this point, but I consider myself more of a monk than a priest because I'm not particularly at this point doing too many priestly functions, and I make a distinction between monk and priest. I started off in 1973 as a monk, and in 1980, I became a priest uh, because I received transmission as a priest. Um, so I was no longer what we would call a junior monk, but I was a priest at that point. I have really considered myself this year much more a monk than a priest. And, and you say that the difference between the two is um, primarily the uh, requirements and duties performed? No, it, it, the duties performed. The requirement, uh, I still am a priest uh, under the duties and so forth. I'm still empowered to do all those things. I'm questioning some of those things. Uh, you know, a lot of what my life has been about, and it's been 41 years now that I have been into Zen, and it's been 40 years. In fact, this week, it's been 40 years since I met both my teacher and uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman, who gave me beginning instruction back there in March of 1972. And, in fact, the day we started writing was 40 years to the day that I met both him and my Zen master, uh, my Zumi Roshi. So it's kind of auspicious. Um, and I became a priest or a monk uh, in 1973, June, or actually it was October. June, I became a Buddhist, and October, I became a monk. And then I said... Uh, the way it works in the Zen school, Soto Zen school to be more specific, is with transmission, uh, what's called Shiho, on the transmission, you also get qualified to do priestly functions. So I can still do those. I'm just not doing them at the moment. Yeah. I may start doing them again, but I've chosen not to do them right now because I'm questioning the whole thing. Uh, and too. So that's partly what we're writing about. 
uh, I call it 40-40 hindsight. Uh, he's been in this 50 mm-hmm. years, like 40 years, but I call it 40-40 hindsight after 40 years in this um, spiritual journey. Uh, I'm looking at it all, and so is he, and we're probably two of the biggest mavericks in the Zen world. I call myself the bad of Zen. I just heard a funny joke he just told me uh, that his mother-in-law just sent him if you want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So he was just reading, just before you rang up, he was reading me several jokes his mother-in-law said, and one of them, Behind every successful man is a woman, and behind every fallen man is another woman. Uh-huh. Uh, you're not laughing. Well, no, I get uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, that happens to be my story, so it's yeah. funny to me. Yeah. Well, and so what... What are the questions that you're sitting in? If you are really questioning the, the spiritual journey or really questioning, you know, kind of the whole Buddhist um, priest perspective, what are your questions? Okay, it's, it's a lot, and it's complicated. I will take it one step at a time and try to be simple. One is, you know, my mother, who I've had... Uh, She's she's passed on now, 2001, but I had an interesting relationship with. Said to me 40 years ago, Dennis, you're on a trip. You're on uh, a real trip, but someday you'll get off this trip. And I didn't believe her, you know, and I'm looking at the trip. You know, we can call it a journey, and that's a very positive word. Uh, or a path, or a way, but I'm looking at the fact that it's also been a spiritual trip. Um, I've let go of a lot this past year. I mean, in a way I could say almost everything. Um, Let me use an analogy. I think most of the listeners have seen the movie Bitch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm sure you have too. Yep. And remember the part where they're chased by the posse to the end of the bluff. Yes. And they, they look down, and there's this river at least 100 feet down, if not more. We have a right. pawn. Pawn goes, how do you step off a 100-foot pole? But it could be cliff. How do you step off this 100-foot pole? Uh, how do you jump off this cliff? Now... Most of us who would get to the edge of the cliff would look over and say, no way am I going to jump off this cliff. And I would do the same. I wouldn't jump off. But with a posse chasing you, they looked at each other with their smirks. They just leaped into the river, off the cliff, and into freedom. (laughs) Well, that's what it's been like for me this year. I have felt chased chased by the posse reached the end of the cliff, and there was no choice but to jump to my own freedom. So it's been a very amazing year. I'm totally grateful for it all, but it's been the most difficult year in my entire 67 years. Yeah. Uh, but it's been uh, 
freeing, very freeing, and freeing from the trip. So, you know, we're, we're all on some trip. You know, and I remember in 1994, uh, I had a very profound experience where we would say letting go of enlightenment. And the experience was that it's all a trip, but when the trip is in line with or in alignment with my teacher and their teachers and their teachers, my ancestors, at least it's not my own trip. Hmm. So it's not my own personal trip, but it is a trip. And I could say that the whole spiritual journey is a trip. So I'm looking, and we're looking, and what we're writing about, we're calling it spitting out the bones. Back in 1972, when I first met Bernie, we were sitting outside his son's schoolhouse, or shul. And we were talking, and Bernie said to me, as long as you're going to do this, do it completely. Swallow the whole fish, and meaning the whole fish, the whole trip, by Zimi Roshi, our teacher, and the whole teaching. Swallow it all like you would swallow a whole fish. And then we can spend the rest of our lives spitting out the bones. So that's what we're doing. We're now, after 40 years, spitting out the bones, and we're doing it for a book. Where we are on this journey, what things are bones that need to be spit out, and what's the flesh of the fish that we keep? Another analogy that we're using is an egg. And I believe the yolk is actually the chick. I hope I have it right. And the white is what they feed on. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at, well, we want to keep the yolk. So what is the yolk? What is essential? What is then? And then what is the white that is needed to feed the chick, the baby chick? But what part is not needed? So we know that the essence of Zen, we are both interested in maintaining and passing on for generations. We've both been in this long enough to see what is the part of the white that is essential to key and what things are extraneous. Right. Well, what don't can you we get out? Don't you think that... Um really, uh, well, this is a personal belief of mine, that really effective teachers um, don't teach dogma. They teach um, what's possible and then encourage the student to take from that what matters to them. That's a personal belief of mine. What's your perspective on that? Well, I, I absolutely agree. It, it is all beliefs. It is all opinions. It's all ideas, right? Yeah. And as long as I think we acknowledge that it's just an opinion or just a belief, we're fine. And I agree with your opinion. Uh, <laughs> it also happens to be my opinion. Yeah. That good teaching works exactly how you said. That's what this book's about. It's, it's us reflecting on the past 40 and for him 50 years. 
He's a little older than me, six years older. He's been at this. I started in 1971, and he started in 1962. Um, so it's a reflection on what is essential and what can we spit out. And we're finding there's a lot to be spit out, but there's a lot of things that are important. Uh, we're writing it because we're two of the oldest timers in this. He was the first non-Japanese to be totally recognized and to go through a ceremony in Japan called Zumise in 19, I believe it was 78. Yeah, it was 78. And I was the second Westerner to go through this ceremony in 1980. So we're two, you know, we're, um, in, in Yiddish it's, it's called Altakaken. It's kind of old farts. <laughs> and we're two of the oldest farts in the, uh, in the business. There's a couple that are a little older and longer, but we're two of the oldest. And, um, so we feel that we have a contribution maybe to make to the world in writing this book. Well, and we have more to talk about in, in terms of the newfound freedom. And I kind of, I would have been a little bit more nice to you. I would have called you guys elders of the tribe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the term. <laughs> but we, but. We'll be right back after this message. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking with Genpo Roshi this morning, also known as Dennis Mertzel. So, Genpo, we were talking about... Let me, Cheryl, let me, let me correct that, okay? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not known as Dennis Merzel. Uh, 
really. I haven't used the name Dennis uh, for more than 40 years, but even growing up, because I was a jock and athlete, water polo swimmer, we called ourselves by last name, so I was just known as Mizelle. So I never oh. used the name Dennis. Oh. So, and I just wanted to correct that. Uh, uh, I was born with the name Dennis Merzel, but uh, I'm actually considering going back to a name I gave myself back in 71. It's only a consideration at this point. And that was Sebastian because I bought a shirt that said Sebastian. It was easier to change my name than my shirt. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I mean, you're just going into, through all these different transformations. <laughs> well, I am, and I'm questioning, part of the questioning is the whole uh, Japanese name, Genpo, uh-huh. you know, um, and even the Japanese title, Roshi, which actually means Elmakakan. Uh Roshi means uh, a venerable old teacher, old teacher, so it's, it's actually got almost the same meaning as Elmakakan. Okay. So, okay, so you had a, you had a question. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm in such good spirits that you're going to find I keep trans, transgressing off your topic, but I, I don't think I've been this happy since 1971-72, which is, you know, a long time. Well, you know, that's a long time to, to go without um, feeling the energy of happiness in this way that you're describing it. Um, and it, it kind of re- makes me think about what you were saying about being on the trip and, or the journey and how that becomes um, the focus in some way rather than you know, looking at how am I living this, right? How is it living me? Um, Absolutely. Well said. Um, it, rather than, you know, it became a mission, you know, we have a saying in Mahayana Buddhism, and Zen is Mahayana, Tibetan is Mahayana, uh, called the Bodhisattva Path, or the Path of the Bodhisattva. I wrote a book called The Path of the Human Being, The Way of the Bodhisattva. And it does become a kind of mission, and rather than living. And so all of this year has thrown me back into living and being versus uh, a lot of doing to save uh, what we would call in Zen all sentient beings or save the planet. It's not that I've stopped being interested in saving and helping and liberating and awakening people, but it doesn't have to be such a trip. I can actually, once again, enjoy my life and enjoy my personal freedom and personal life and it doesn't have to be such a uh, mission. Well, you have um, you have really made um, a when you were teaching, um, you made a distinction and moved toward Zen Buddhism and away from um, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but traditional Buddhism. Um, Correct. What what um, what made you what got you interested in the Zen part of Buddhism? You know why why was that a distinction for you? Well, that came very early on. That was nineteen seventy one seventy two. Uh, I had a very profound experience on February sixth of nineteen seventy one, 
uh, an awakening experience, and I didn't know what happened to me. I was out in the desert. Uh, I, I went out there with my best friend and his new girlfriend, and they walked off into the desert to be alone, and I climbed this mountain, and I was sitting in meditation. I, I didn't know it was meditation because I had never meditated. I was sitting there contemplating my life, and I had a very profound awakening where I became one with all existence, one with all things. Uh, and it was an awakening to another form of being, another form of consciousness, that before that I had no clue even existed. And what that created for me was a desire to help others liberate and awaken. And when I read Buddhism, and at that time I read everything written on Buddhism and Zen Buddhism that was written uh, that I could get my hands on, I also read Carl Jung, and I read uh, Hinduism, the, you know, the biography of a yogi, and I read well. I read a lot of different things. And then Buddhism resonated with me as the clearest and most direct how to liberation, and it, it corresponded to the experience that I had in the desert. And that after that experience, I had what I call, there was a quake, like, and then aftershocks, because these openings just kept having, happening repeatedly for, oh, well over a year, year and a half. Uh, they stopped having, <laughs> happening so readily, funny enough, when I met my teacher and started studying at the Zen Center of Los Angeles in 1972, uh, which now I look back with 40-40 hindsight and say, well, uh, when I got on this other trip called traditional Zen, which uh, you mentioned, why was I... Um, you know, why did Zen appeal to me versus other Buddhism? Yeah. So I think I've answered that. But also, in 1999, when I discovered the big mind, I, I actually uh, felt like something was... I was almost felt like I was pregnant for a number of months. It happened to be nine months before June of 99, when big mind was birthed. Uh, I felt like I was impregnated by something, and this big mind uh, came out. And why I moved from traditional Zen then, away from that, was this was so much quicker way to help, help people have a state experience most familiar with Ken Wilber will understand what I mean by state experience, uh, an opening, an awakening that in traditional Zen took years and years and years uh, to happen. And it was always by chance. The conditions were just right and somebody had a shift in consciousness of awakening like what happened to me in the desert. But it couldn't be predicted and it couldn't be um, facilitated. What I discovered in Big Mind was a way to facilitate this for others that was a given. In other words, 
97% of the people I would work with, I mean, came over kind of uh, used some kind of diagnostic testing to, to make that statement. But people got it at that level. Uh, and it was almost like a guarantee that somebody could make that shift using this very simple process that I invented in 99. So I started to move away from some of the teachings, which we could say becomes dogma, some of the things that maybe were other people's experiences over the 2,500 years of Buddhism that later became dogma. And we could say uh, that everything is upaya. Upaya means a skillful means. It can be translated as skillful means, but it also can be translated as a technique, or it could be even as a manipulation or as a trick, because what we have to do is trick the person into shifting consciousness, because the ego is always at work. The ego always. Does, yes, and it doesn't want to lose itself. In other words, uh, a big mind experience or a Zen experience, I'll use the term interchangeably, is really a dropping of the ego. It's a loss yeah. of the ego so that we wake up to this fuller, more complete kind of consciousness that has no boundaries and no barrier. The ego, <laughs> even though it wants to be God and wants to be Buddha and wants to be awakened, it doesn't want to disappear in that process. It wants to be there to witness its own death. Right. You know, and it can't happen. The right. ego has to be gone for there to be that awakening. So upaya is also a trick or a technique, skillful means, to trick the ego into getting out of the way, falling back or stepping back or dropping off or whatever word we use so there can be a full awakening experience. So what I discovered was that this was so much more immediate. Now, Zen, historically, is known as the sudden school or the sudden path or the sudden way to enlightenment. However, because of dogma and teachings, it's become a very gradual and tedious path of years and years of monastic sitting to have an enlightened experience. And the big mind allowed that to happen very quickly. And so a lot of the criticism that I've received has been that this is too easy, it's too simple, yeah. it can't be real, it can't be genuine, but it is real, and it is genuine, as genuine as real as anything else is, which we could say it's all illusion or it's all not real, or we can say it's all real, you yeah. know, I mean, whichever way we want to look at it. Uh, our teacher, Nazumi Roshi, was always saying, if you want to call delusion, it's all delusion. If you want to call enlightenment, it's all enlightenment. Bernie just walked in and throwing his hands up. You know, what you doing? What you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he's a clown. He's become a clown, and I and I become a joke. <laughs> okay. Well, so he, he, has, he has a whole order called the Clown Order. 
But Clown Order, well, why yeah. not? Yeah. Why not? It's well, a- you know, it, man, let me just say this, please. So, the, 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 the last phase of Zen is you become a kind of fool. We call it the great fool or joker, you know? And it's yeah. like in cards, you've got, you know, the joker is the wild card. Right. And right. then it's all about becoming that wild card. Right. Uh, I, I made a little, a little goof. I became, I became, instead of the wild card, I became the bad boy uh, of Zen. But um, anyways. Well, and so, you know, I, I really appreciate the whole concept of the ego needing to drop off. And, but it seems to me that um, when the ego drops off, for instance, the ego dropped away, you know, way back in, in 71 when you had that epiphany while you were sitting on the mountain. And um, because if the ego hadn't dropped off, you probably wouldn't have been able to, to let all of that in, right? Because the ego had tried to be bigger than that idea. And so it dropped off, but apparently the ego doesn't stay away. So it's not like it happens once yeah. it's gone. Right, it can't. Yeah. We're dysfunctional. In 1994, uh, once again, it wasn't the first, second, or third time, but anyways, uh, it was a number of times later. It dropped off for long enough that I became, in my own opinion, dysfunctional for several days. Uh, It was uh, uh, a number of days that the ego dropped off to the point where if I hadn't been in a retreat that was very regimented, where my, my day was very scheduled because I was running the retreat, I was a sensei at the time, not quite a Roshi yet. This was 1994, and I became a Roshi in 96. Um, I would have been very dysfunctional had I not been in a context or in a framework where my day was very prescribed. But I realized something in that experience, and that is that absolutely we need the ego. We also need to see that there is an experience that's beyond ego that is all-inclusive, that is one with all things, Um, but we do need the ego, and up to that point, which also happened to be June of 94, my birthday happens to be June 3rd, and so a lot of things seem to happen to me around my birthday, I don't know why, but they do. What I realized at that point, up to then, I wanted to be more egoless. It seemed to me to be really uh, something to aim for, something to practice for, to be more egoless, less egocentric. And then I realized, my God, I need this ego. And this craving or desire to be egoless is quite an ego trip. Right. You know, quite an ego trip. Right, right. So that dropped away. And I no longer was aiming towards or desiring to be egoless. So we could say that maybe some of the problems that I ran into was over this, because there's always finding balance, as you know, finding a state of integration. 
And my life, and I seem to be one of these horses that has to be whipped to the marrow rather than running at the shadow of the whip, um, my life is, it seems to be about rising and falling. And uh, the rising means inflated ego and then a popping or a bursting of the ego. I like to say, you know, I was a ball player. I was very much a ball player and a swimmer. And eventually I combined them and became a water polo player. And I've always liked to play ball with a firm, full ball. And I'd like to play life with a firm, full ego. And I didn't like playing with a deflated ball nor a deflated ego. So I've always managed to puff up my ego again or blow air into the ego or the ball to inflate it. So every once in a while, it has to seem, it seems like it has to be popped. And that's what happened to me uh, last January, a year ago, 14 months ago, that the ball was popped. And for a while, I was playing the game of life with a very deflated ball. It wasn't very fun, but it was very humbling. Yeah. And, and I'm very, very appreciative and grateful now to that, you know, and even to the posse who chased me to the, the end of the cliff. Well, and that's quite an accomplishment in itself, you know, to get to that point of gratitude for that experience and that learning. I want to talk more about that in our next segment, and we'll be right back. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with our special guest this morning, Genpo Roshi, who is the author of Big Mind, Big Heart, Finding Your Way, and a really interesting spiritual teacher who has had quite a path to follow. So, Genpo, we were talking about um, an experience that you've had in the, over the last year and a half um, that you say has, was very humbling. And, you know, it was quite controversial. It was very visible. 
Um, many people were privy to what was going on with you, and many people were very vocal about um, your approach as a teacher, and also um, some of the actions that you engaged in, you know, in not as a teacher, but as, as an individual, as a human being on the planet. Um, tell us a bit about that. What's the synopsis there? Um, well, you know, I don't know exactly what um, you're interested in or audience is interested. Uh, and I'll say what I feel happened to me, um, which I think is in the context of, of what's really more interesting. Yes. And that is, uh, in 1980, uh, I received what is called Dharma Transmission. Uh, and Bernie, who's here with me right now, received that same trans- transmission in 1977. So he was our teacher, Mizuni Roshi's first successor. I was the second successor. Uh-huh. And in that, we are empowered as the Buddha to transmit the teachings to others. And it's a very special Buddha. It's called Mahavarachana Buddha. So in that seven-day ceremony, we're, uh, it's almost like, uh, empowered as Mahavarachana Buddha to give birth, and only Mahavarachana Buddha can give birth to uh, another Buddha. So it's a very special Buddha. It's not Chakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha. It's, It's not... Other Buddhas, it's Mahavarachana Buddha. Uh, in nine, no, excuse me. In two thousand four, January two thousand five, January. My memory is a little off on this. I, I think it's four. So twenty four years later, I was doing uh, a transmission, done a transmission. I think it was my sixth uh, to a. Dutchman in Holland, in the island of Amalond, which I did these retreats up to 380 people at a time, these big retreats uh, once a year on this island. And I was doing this retreat and doing this transmission. And after 24 years, I really got what it means to do this transmission and what it means to be Mahavarachana Buddha. And in our practice, this would be called truly embodying what one has realized and one has been offered. So I really embodied this archetype. Then I proceeded to get very identified as Mahavarachana Buddha. And a lot of the teaching that took place between 2004 and one year later, also at the same island, Amalon, of 2011, I really, really not only identified with Mahavarachana Buddha, but I became inflated as Mahavarachana Buddha. And I was empowering others in a way that never before was possible. Uh, and people were having these amazing experiences. And that became inflationary for me. Uh, and I started to buy my own press. Yes. Uh, and I got very caught up in it. So to me, this 
was more important than anything else. I became very arrogant and very inflated. However, I didn't see that as very often we don't. You know, we're kind of blind to ourselves. I saw myself on a mission. And the mission was to help the world awaken and to raise the level of consciousness. And so I started raising lots of money. You brought up before the program started a little bit about the Big Heart Retreats, yes. which are our way of raising funds. We started off as an exorbitant amount of donation, but it was a fundraiser. I didn't like fundraising. And I had heard from many people who had been extremely generous to my organization, but also to other organizations, that very often they give lots of money, but they don't get anything back in return like even a thank you. Or, and it seems a little absurd, but it happens. So I thought, well, what is the best thing I could give back in return for a large donation? And it was my time and teaching. Yeah. So we started something at that time was called a 5550. It was later became known as Big Heart Retreats. Where and when I say this, some people are going to be shocked. People made donations of fifty thousand dollars, and there was a maximum of five people for five days. And the way this came about, there was a woman who I was talking to about fundraising, and she had been a personal assistant to two presidents of the United States. Carter and Reagan. And she said to me, because I had this idea of one way to raise money was to do a retreat for 10 people for 10 days for 10,000. I called it a 10, 10, 10. Hmm. And she said, she said, the people who have $10,000 don't have 10 days of time. Hmm. You know, they're very busy people. And you're not going to find 10 of them. She said, why don't you make it five days for five people and ask $50,000 donation? So I did. I, I was shocked, but I did. And in that retreat, which happened to be at Kripalu um, in Massachusetts, yeah. I made the announcement that I was going to do this fundraiser to raise money to, to really bring the big mind work out into the world. Okay? This was about six years ago. And uh, when I announced it, five people signed up, including Glenna. Wow. So, I mean, I was shocked. Okay? So, I mean, that's $250,000 of fundraising in two minutes, you know, or five right. days, because, because I still had to produce the, the workshop. Sure. Which put, which put a lot of stress on me, too, because, you know, they were expecting a lot for the $50,000. Yeah, right. You know? Right, so, right, they, they, right. They, they expected to, you know, come out as transformed. Transformed, which, yes. Well, it was so successful. I did five of them that year, and they all filled up. Fantastic. Can you imagine? And then the next year, I think I did six or seven. And eventually, you know, we had the big uh, uh, economic crash. And... People didn't have 50, so I lowered it to 25, and they were still filling up. Anyways, they're now much, much less because, uh, one, for the economy, but two, I've gotten so much grief over these things. They've been so misunderstood that uh, my retreats are overpriced. I mean, overpriced, it's, it's absurd. But they're not, they're not 
retreat in that way. They're fundraisers right. where I give back my time. Right. That was the point. It wasn't, you know, I give lots of retreats for a lot less money. I spend time for free with people. That wasn't right. the point. It was a fundraising activity where I wanted to give back what people really wanted, which was my time and teaching yeah. in a very intimate, personal way. And, you know, they continue to be very successful because people do get what they're looking for, which is their lives are transformed. You know, we just had one in Houston. It was for seven people. Six came. And, you know, I just got off the phone just two minutes before you called with a woman who was there. Her life's transformed. She's, well, 78 or 79 years old. Her life's transformed. I mean, she is just glowing, you know, from doing these retreats. She's done, I think, four of them. Uh, people keep coming back because they find them so valuable. So enough on that. Uh, I was on another topic, how I got inflated. So this last, a year ago, January, it's not this last January, but 2011, my ball got popped or I crashed, um, like that joke I told earlier. Yeah. Uh, and and um, I think, I mean, Obviously, what I did was very hurtful, and I've been, you know, reflecting on the pain and the suffering I've caused, particularly to my former wife, who's been divorced now 11 months, uh, but to others, you know, and particularly to a couple women that I had affairs with. Not that they were hurt by my affairs. Uh, that wasn't the problem. Other people were hurt by the lying and deceitfulness. But, you know, how do you tell people, well, I'm having an affair without not having an affair, you know? Right. So I, I, did, I was not transparent. So my life now is about being transparent, being honest, and not hurting people. Uh, so that's part of what I'm grateful for because I woke up from my ego-inflated place that I had gotten to by buying into this whole thing that I was bigger than life and that I was here to, you know, uh, help the planet transform consciousness. Now I see it more in a, let's say, more humbling way that I can save one starfish at a time. You know the old story that all these starfish walks up on the beach yeah. and the guy runs down there and he starts throwing a starfish back one at a time and somebody says, hey, hey, there's millions of them. How are you going to rescue them all, and he says, well, I won't, but I can do one starfish at a time. So now I, I stopped doing a lot of the activities I was doing of broadcasting worldwide, of, of televising, of all this, and I'm just working with an individual at a time or maybe a small group at a time, and in a, in a less dramatic, less inflated, less rock star way, uh, just more humbly. That's all. Well, and, you know, not, um, not a lot of people come back from a situation like that and are willing to still stand in the public eye and um, be seen and be seen as, um, a, a, you know, ingratitude, be seen, you know, as owning the responsibility of the actions and, uh, in a true way. And, and I do experience you that way. It's a great learning for all of us, and 
know, our teachers really, um, on every level, you know, our teachers give to us. And we, we who have teachers, you know, you've had teachers, I have teachers, there's a tendency in the beginning with teachers to look at them and think, oh, my gosh, they're perfect. And then, of course, the teacher does something to make sure we know, oh, no, it's not about perfection, <laughs> you, know? Okay. So, you know, right? And I remember going through that with teachers as a, as a young person and um, finally got it. It's like, oh, you're right, right, right. You know, it's not about aspiring to be perfect and it's not about having this belief in this individual that they are perfect and that I'm just never going to be that. Um, you know, it's really about how do we integrate these beliefs into who we are and um, and practice every day. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that, Kempo. I, I think it's important for people to know, you know the reality behind this kind of learning and integrating in these beliefs. So we have well, about sure. one, We have about well, I want to, I want to say ahead. one thing. I really appreciate your wisdom, you know, because a lot of people don't get what you just said, and that only comes through the pain and suffering and disillusionment uh, and disappointment that you've obviously gone through to get to that understanding. I just want to acknowledge that. Oh, thank you. Well, we have about one minute left, and so I want to make sure people know how to um, learn more about you and, and what you're doing. So where would you send them? Okay, well, first of all, bigmind.org. Very simple, bigmind.org. Uh, and from there, they can find everything else out. Uh, I'm leading retreats still. Uh, my last scheduled retreat is October 6th and 7th with Ken Wilbur. We're going to do something together in Denver. I've got a retreat coming up in about three or four weeks here in Maui, a three-day retreat. Uh, and then I have a series of retreats coming up all summer. Uh, I am living in Hawaii, so my only retreat until... Uh, the summer is here, uh, and then I spend the summers in uh, Mount Solitude, and so I've got a number of retreats in the L.A. area uh, and near Palm Springs and Idlewild in Utah, and I think two in Utah, and I believe in San Francisco. Oh, so there are some... What was that? So we'll, we'll have to... Um, get you back again. You can tell us how things are going, and... and... People can learn more about this by going to your website, bigmind.org. Kimbo, thank you so much for being here today. It was really an honor and a pleasure. And um, I feel very much honored to know you as a friend. Thank you, Cheryl. And, and it's likewise. And I'm not just saying that. I really mean it from the bottom of my heart. Uh, it's been great. It's great to know you. And I think you do an incredible job. Thank oh, you. thank you. Well, aloha. And uh, remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.